Welcome to the Frog Logic Podcast. I just want to start the show out today with uh, just a, a real quick introduction to the guys that are coming on because they're, they have such an incredible resume. I want to make sure I do it justice and I read what's coming off their website at the LoboInstitute.com. So uh, one of my guests is uh, Michael Mick Patrick Mulroy. Uh, is a former United States Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East, serving from November 2017 to December 2019. As the DSSD for the Middle East, he was responsible for Department of Defense Policy for Bahrain, Egypt, Israel, Iran, Iraq, Jordan, Kuwait, Lebanon, Oman, Palestine, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Syria, United Arab Emirates and Yemen. So all the lovely hotspots in the world he was uh, in charge of. Um, he's also a retired uh, Central Intelligence Agency paramilitary operations officer, worked for SAD, and a United States Marine. He also a member of a board of directors for the Grassroots Reconciliation Group, a nonprofit to help rehabilitate child soldiers, and an ABC News national security analyst uh, on TV. Uh, unbelievable guy. So, so stoked to have him coming on. All right. And then Ollie or Oli, sorry, Eric Oli Olerick is a retired 20 plus year Navy SEAL officer ending his career while serving as a commanding officer or the CEO of a tier one unit from July, 2017 to 2019 at the pinnacle of a career uh, as CEO of this elite unit. He was responsible for the research and development of technology and tactics for SEALs to use against the hardest, uh, the nation's hardest problems, the geographic scope and responsibility spanning from Pacific, Africa, and the Middle East. By galvanizing over uh, 1,100 personnel combined with collection technology, he provided a security blanket ex against extremism for the international community. He's also a member of the board of directors for the Grassroots uh, Reconciliation Organization. Uh, these guys are pipe hitters, and they're going to be absolutely incredible uh, as we dig into this. Uh, before we do that, though, I want to make sure I give a shout out, uh, a special thanks to my sponsors on it, uh, Optimizing Total Human Performance. Uh, I just want to uh, thank on it for an incredible long-term relationship of, of sponsoring, and, and even in these hard times, man, just really appreciate it. Uh, if you want to optimize yourself, head over to onnit.com. That's O-N-N-I-T. Uh, pick up uh, all the different types of supplements. My personal favorites are the Alpha Brain and the Gut Health ones. They help me every single day. So head over to Onnit. That's O-N-N-I-T.com. And uh, tell them Frog Logic sent you. All right. And the other sponsor is uh, ReadyWise, or formerly the Wise Food Company. Uh, wise company. And uh, if you want some freeze dried food for your next pandemic or crisis, that's uh, who knows when that one's coming, right? Uh, then head over to readywise.com. Uh, the whole host, incredible uh, amount of, of choices from one month to six months to one year. This is an organization that really uh, is going to uh, help you in your uh, peace of mind. Uh, so if you want your family to be ready for the next time where potentially grocery stores don't open, uh, where meat shortages continue, chicken shortages, whatever, uh, you need to make sure that you have enough food to feed your family for about six months. So head over to readywise.com. In a promo code, type in FROGLOGIC. You'll get 25% off all products there. Uh, you can't beat this. Uh, they are a little backlogged right now. Uh, but don't worry, I just spoke with their CEO a few uh, weeks ago. They're going to get to it. They're going to get you your order as soon as possible. That's readywise.com, promo code FROGLOGIC, 25% off. And if you're interested, you or your organization is interested in, uh, in an online motivational talk for your team, go ahead and reach us at teamfroglogic.com. Send in. Uh, we, I've got a beautiful uh, a new online presentation called Pandemic Motivation, uh, Finding a Pathway Through the Pain. Go ahead, reach out. We're happy to uh, work that for all your um, team members or your organization. Man, we're just here to help. All right, without further ado, let's jump into this, shall we? Gentlemen, welcome aboard. <laughs> I, I almost feel like I need to do the yeah, yeah, you <laughs> <laughs> I to call you boat, Eric. I, I, I love that so much in the platoon space, right? When guys would walk in, you'd always give them the old, give them the old whistle and butcher it for them, right? Yeah. 
Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the Frog Logic podcast. I, you know, when our, our mutual friend reached out to me and, and uh, said, you guys uh, were interested in maybe, you know, having a chat, I, I was really fascinated by, you know, what the Lobo Institute is all about. And, 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 you know, as I, as I got to know more about you guys and what you're doing and our few talks we've had prior to, I've just become fascinated by um, not only just the intensity of child soldiering, but just the way, you know, things are shifting pretty substantially in the world as we know it, in particular as COVID-19 starts to shift our focus away from uh, a lot of these kind of smaller conflict regions in the world, right? Everybody likes to say, oh, we're in the most peaceful time of all human history. But yet what people don't realize is that there are still plenty of, 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 of challenges in these areas where governance and economic disasters hit. And, and there, all these uneducated children are really at high risk. Uh, and I just thought it would be such a beautiful conversation to be able to have you guys expand on that for our, my listeners and, and really just to get to know you guys and what you're doing. So why don't we start out and just, if you guys could share with everybody, you know, what the Lobo Institute, actually, let's go back a little bit and let's just say I, two quick questions. Why did you guys first want to become a Marine and why did you want to become a Navy SEAL? Um. Well, first of all, thanks for having us, Dave. Uh, we uh, really appreciate the opportunity to really get on here and talk about an issue that's near and dear to Eric in my heart, which is child soldiers. But to go specifically to your question, service, I mean, to, in a nutshell, uh, that was it. I just wanted to serve something bigger than myself. And uh, the Marine Corps was the first to recruit station as I walked down the row of recruiting station. Uh, and, I walked, and there was nobody in there which probably, you know, might have been a clue for most people. But my good friend Harlan and I decided that was for us. And then we joined. And from there was, you know, enlisted Marines. And then you know, I became an officer and then got recruited by the agency, et cetera. But it was all for the same reason at different levels. But at the end of the day, from private to serving as, uh, you know, the deputy assistant secretary, it was all the same reason. That's cool. That's really, was it, was it your dad? Did your dad serve? Did your family serve long history of service? So Irish American family, long, long history of service. My father actually, no, he was, uh, he was a professor. So he was an academic. <laughs> Mine too, man. Yeah. Mine too. So he was a little bewildered when I decided to go, but supported it. And like I said, you know, we had a lot of, a lot of people who served in my family. Um, so yeah, he supported it 100, but it wasn't because of a drive to, you know, you know, to follow my dad's footsteps. Right on. How about you, Eric? What 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 made was it was it Charlie Sheen? Because that certainly was a big one for me. <laughs> no, it wasn't Charlie. Actually, it was uh, it was Tom Cruise. It was Maverick. Yeah. So um, no kidding. I had a seventh grade math teacher. Uh, you know, growing up in a small town in Northwest Montana, seventh grade math teacher. He had flown F-4s and stuff after Vietnam, and he, you know, he wore the, the leather fighter, the leather jacket, fighter pilot jacket to school and stuff like that, and he was a bit different. Um, I expressed an interest in trying to get into a service academy, and he told me that I was too stupid. <laughs> and um, actually, anger is probably one of my better motivators, and right. it really fired me up. So I, I started working pretty hard. I never said a word to him. I was like, all right, I'll come back and get mine. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, so I worked pretty hard, uh, got accepted in Naval Academy. Um, and then I had originally gone there really kind of set on trying to fly something. Yeah. Um, but the more I kind of hung out with pilots, the more I just realized that they, I was cut of a different cloth and the more I, I hung out around, you know, there were a couple seals at the, at the Naval Academy grounds there. The more I hung out with them, I was like, man, those guys are all for each other, totally accountable for what they do. They're, you know, strong individually, but stronger as a team. And all, all that just resonated with me. So um, originally I came in thinking that I would go for Kelly McGillis, uh, <laughs> the, um, Tom Cruise, but at the end of it, I was kind of a little bit more like Charlie Sheen, 
And uh, I was like, nah, man, pins out. We're going to do this. And uh, so I, yeah, I just, I, you know, I, I worked at it and then ended up going to Bud's uh, right after graduate from the Yale Academy. That's it's, awesome. It's great, man. I, I wouldn't change it for the world. But uh, well, well, yeah, my, my family history, um, I, I do have, you know, my, my, my parents are pretty liberal, but uh, m- my dad, he also grew up in eastern Montana. And as a young man, he was uh, part of the smoke jumpers. So mm-hmm. basically guys that jump out of planes and fight forest fires. Mm-hmm. And at the time when he was about 21, that's when the CIA ironically needed guys like smoke jumpers to go over to Laos and run help supply covert forces on that side of the Dalwatian border. So he went over there and uh, he was over there as a, as, as a, as a, the early days of paramilitary ground branch stuff fighting uh, in Vietnam. Wow. Yeah, That's so cool. This guy was in my unit. Are you yeah. ca- early, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Bike yeah. holder. That wow. Was after, after CIA was started. Yeah. Wow. So was, wow. Know, but he was very, uh, he, he never let any of that influence me. And he never wore it on his, on his, on his, on his, you know, it was never on the exterior of him. And he, I don't, I, I knew that there was some stuff there. He was very close lipped about it. But uh, right before I kind of went to Bud's, I was like, yeah, I don't know where this whole SEAL thing is going to take me if I get through training. Um, but two, you know, number one, but two, um, I'm going to be kind of running in some of these circles. I kind of would like to know some of your background. And so he kind of talked me through it a bit, but yeah, that was, you know, he, he, he wanted to make sure that whatever, whatever paths I went down, they were my paths, not paths that he had kind of created. Those are, you know, that's, it's funny. We, we, we don't recognize the power of influence as children while you're a child. You just know there's something moving you. And, and I think as, as Americans, we've had this consistent generational influence of pride that's affiliated with servitude of, of, of you know, there's a desire in, inside of us to see um, the power of, of of propping up this democracy, this republic that we live in, and and the requirements that go with it, which is for young, impressionable men and women to raise their right hand and and join and serve the military. And I think the the the, the stark contradiction to what's happening in in these jungles and these fields and these bombed out cities around the world of how other children come to fight for ultimately uh, for what seems like just an endless supply of wrong reasons, most significantly, you know, to be the proxies of, of these despots and these radical, you know, dictators or whomever, you know, seems to be the, the puppet master at the time. And, and, you know, as two men that have obviously seen so much, uh, pain and sorrow and anguish and devastation over the last, in particular, 20 years around the world. I find it fascinating to me that in the midst of, you know, you know, in the midst of all that, the the gray, the the inability for a lot of people to be able to see that there's some type of light at the end of a tunnel where where uh, you know peace can be achieved in these regions that you guys can, can, you know, push that stuff away and see the value of children and in the profound impact that, that, you know, these child soldiers, the, the effects that it has on them, but not only them, but on the world itself and what's going to happen to these kids. And I would just love to know how that influence was seeded in both of you, if that's okay or one of you, or both of you, or how the Lobo Institute. Yeah, so, um, I'll, Dave, I'll start. Uh, you know, the, the role of kids in conflict, and whether it was by choice or not by choice, it wasn't really apparent to me um, if, for a while. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I deployed right after 9-11, 
like eight days after 9-11. Um, and like that's, you know, Ensign Ulrich, you know, right when 9-11 hits, just wrapping up a, a workup at SEAL Team 8, gonna deploy anyway. Um, we just got accelerated and then we went right kind of over into it. Um, and then another subsequent deployment in 2003 and four that was a real meat grinder. A lot of conflict, a lot of high, high end violence um, in kind of both of those rotations. And then, you know, even subsequently again, you know, multiple rotations, you know, with kind of a, a, a tier one unit and going over to Afghanistan or Somalia or Yemen. And every single one of those trips has got a lot of high end violence in it. Um, it wasn't until for me personally, in 2014, uh, Mick and I started working with a guy that was a former child soldier and he had been uh, abducted by a guy, you know, Joseph Coney in Uganda. And this is kind of the, the proxy war between Uganda and Sudan that kind of led to the formation of South Sudan. But this guy had been a child soldier for like 10 years and I was using him to try and find Joseph Coney and the hunt for Coney that Soft was involved in at the time. Um, you know, and, and Mick was also kind of doing the, the, a, a parallel thing, you know, with the, with the agency. So, uh, but it was through his lens of getting to know him that then I really understood those that are caught in the middle that really don't have a vote. And I didn't appreciate that. I'd been in all those conflicts. I'd seen all those things, but I didn't appreciate the role and the, the exploitable factor that those children were um, until seeing it through Anthony's lens, living it through making a documentary about his experiences and about his life. And then subsequently I went back, you know, to a, you know, to a, to a tier one unit and then did a number of deployments. And then in, in, in the operations that we were architecting and in the things that we were doing, I could then with that more of that optic, I could really see the use and, and abuse that was happening by different despots and, you know, power hungry people and what they were doing with the kids. So, um, you know, that was kind of the project, the, the, the process for me personally. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of the things, that's why it's really easy now to get behind it. And it's really easy now to understand through all those operations, what was happening behind the scenes in a larger level than I really understood. So that's, that was kind of what, what, what drew me in and, and what motivates me on, on this subject. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm somewhat restricted about what I can talk about as far as experience, et cetera. But for the most part, it's very similar to Eric's. It's very similar to yours. It's very similar to most of our, um, brothers and sisters that have been fighting this war for 20 years, right? So um, we kept coming across kids in the battlefield. Uh, We'll get into why that is the case, but generally they're very inexpensive, but they're easy to manipulate. Um, And I don't think anybody became a SEAL or a Marine or a paramilitary officer with the idea that they were gonna fight a child. So um, I had that kind of realization many times over the last 20 years. Um, I would say there was one story that um, I think I can relay, but um, it has probably happened to many, many of us. But there was one particular incident where I was chasing a group of people and um, one of them spun around and it was a kid. And then I realized that he had had an AK kind of hidden. And I could look at his eyes and I could see he was going to go for the the AK, right? Um, Which would have been bad for both of us. And I can only uh, remember one word in posturing at the time, and it was candy. Because, you know, I used to go to the villages and throw out candy. So right, the, the Skittles, all, right? Oh, yeah, I don't know what the name is now, but they'd be yelling at us to throw out the candy, right? So I just said candy. And I could see him, like, turn from somebody who was going to shoot me to a kid and say, wait a minute, you got candy? And so we just let go of the weapon. And, you know, even till this day, I, I keep a bag of Jolly Rogers uh, uh, with me for that for that purpose. Um, and then, as Eric said, and I know we're going to get into detail on Anthony, the, the child soldier there, just referenced, but uh, he had a profound impact because he was he he is now really good friends. We are really good friends with him. We know him as a person, not just the kid that we saw on the battlefield. 
He's not a kid anymore. Um, but he's also one of the best people I've ever met. And that is saying something considering the, the trauma and tragedy that he went through in his life. And I think it really, for me, humanized and personalized this issue. And that's why we do a lot of things with the Little Institute, but uh, that's, I think, at its core, that's the passion that Eric and I really want to champion. That's beautiful. You know, I, I, it's so often as you're a young up and coming, either Marine or frogman or, you know, case officer, or whatever you're doing, you, you try and, you know, project the potential realities of what you might face. And I'll, I'll never forget, you know, I, I was going through 18 Delta and had a guy in, in my group uh, when we were doing goat labs who had been in Somalia and the guy went on to have a beautiful career at, at another tier one unit, amazing guy, brilliant guy. And, and as a young ranger was in Somalia and, and, and had to shoot not only uh, several children, but women as well too, uh, when they were pinned down that in, in that one area next to the helicopters. And, and I remember him telling me the story going, my, my God, what, I mean, was it, was it, were they everywhere? And he was like, yeah, it was just, it was like, they're just part of the scenery. They, they, the people, the actual soldiers or the, you know, the, the warlords were using shield kids as shields and all this. And then it got me just thinking how, you know, if you're fighting in, in any environment around the world that, you know, you're, you're in people's, where people live and you're in where they are, where they where their societies are and where their, you know, their tribes are. And so there's always going to be children available, uh, not only to, uh, you know, bear the burden of, of, of combat operations, but also to bear witness to it. And, and like you were saying before is that, you know, they're relatively cheap and they're impressionable. Now, when I, when I watched that, the documentary you guys sent me about Anthony and, and his wife, Florence, um, I found it, you know, so just as if they were snatching these children as if it was just a, a natural order of business. If, if you lived in a village that was on along their supply route or their, you know, their, you know, how they moved around from one section to another, chances are they're going to come in, they're going to snatch a couple kids, a couple girls and to incorporate them. And what, it was interesting to me as, and you just kind of reaffirmed that as he was telling his story, there was this deep resonance of empathy and compassion in his heart in the way he described this experience, not as if almost to say, I don't hate my experience. Um, but I, I certainly understand the devastating nature of it and I want to do something about it. And, and what I, I found interesting, and now as you guys have confirmed it, is how do you not just fall complete victim to this man's, his mission, right? You can, because it's, it's unrestrained. So many of us, we emit certain emotions that are, are, are veiled in our own defensive posture, but this guy's just coming straight from the heart in his experience and saying, this needs to stop but really has no idea how to do it. And I think, you know, so groups like yours to identify that these kids, these killed were victims of this larger thing way beyond outside there, that there, there needs to be some type of way to rehabilitate them. And that's what I found fascinating by um, the, the grassroots. What was it? The, the grassroots. Um, yeah. yeah. That you guys are on the board with. And I went and I read through their website and these are just, I mean, they're, they're in these villages where guys like Anthony and Florence are, and they're giving seminars on trauma. They're giving seminars on how to hide. I mean, and it was really like, it was just that simple, not simple, it's complex, but it's, it really takes that much initiative. How do you guys intend with, with Lobo to be able to contribute? How do you guys in, in, in intend to contribute to those things? And, and, and also just, you know, uh, how, how has Anthony now turned his life experience around and is contributing? Yeah, so um, to, to step back a little bit and talk about Lobo, um, it's just Lobo Institute. It's just me and Eric, so it maybe Institute's a little, a little grandiose, of a, but we like it, so we're sticking with it. 
Um, it does a lot of things. It's all about conflict, right? So it's how to end conflicts that are currently going, how to stop ones from starting, and then as you're referencing, we're really trying to help those most adversely affected, especially kids. Um, so we do things like we advise for a, uh, ABC News, we teach at universities, we belong to a think tank. Um, for most of the, of the conflict uh, topics, when it comes to the uh, helping people that are most adversely affected, we are on the board of advisors for Grassroots Reconciliation Group. That's a group that's really specific to East Africa uh, and dealing with the Lord's Resistance Army and the aftermath of that. Um, they do just what you said. They, they're up there, they're in Gulu. They work there to help these kids come out of the bush. Uh, they're all told when they go in there that their family and their village will never take them back because of the atrocities that they're committing. So it's a, it's a Herculean task, quite frankly, for these, for these groups to go and, and get them to accept that they but, do have a chance to get back into the society. The, the, and that's numbers, church. the numbers, Mick, are phenomenal, though. I mean, like some like over 2,000 kids have been repatriated into their communities, and I couldn't believe the numbers were as large as they were uh, in these levels of efforts. It, it was just astounding to me that it was these families and these people that, you know, I mean, you go in and you hack up a, a tribe, you know, you figure, all right, you're pretty much done. You're never getting back in, but it's happening. And that's what's incredible to me. Absolutely. And there was almost, uh, or there was 20,000 kids abducted by the Lawrence Resistance wow. Army over their lifespan, the lifespan of the insurgency. So it's a significant, this is just, we're just talking about one. You know, I know we're going to talk about the worldwide problem, um, but this is just one insurgency and one issue and quite frankly uh, and there's a lot of your audience that probably served uh, in uh, operation observant compass which was a u.s effort to help ugandans in the insurgency and it it's one of those operations that's not talked about that much but um it was very successful it was successful in an unusual way it focused on influence operations to get the kids to come out voluntarily and not have to actually go in there and have a, have a fight uh, mm -hmm. kinetically in the insurgency, so to speak. So um, the U.S. and a lot of the, uh, particularly Green Berets uh, that served over there, uh, have, have a lot to be proud of when it comes to that operation. But this, that has essentially ended the LRA as an insurgency. So it is, uh, GRG does great work. Eric and I are both super happy to work with them. Um, but we're now looking at the worldwide issues that are going on and how significant this problem has become and how it's increasing in size and scope and complexity. And that's, we have a, a, an NGO that we're working on inside a logo called In Child Soldiering, which will look at the worldwide issue, not just East Africa. I went to the Child Soldier International report and it said that there's 240 million kids living in conflicts around, in countries with conflict, uh, 14 countries are widely using child soldiers, and that's according to the OPAC, the Operational Protocol on, on Involvement of Children in Armed Conflict. You know, those, those basic numbers, 18 and under, 16 and under, 15 and a half and under, I saw one at 15 and a half, and, you know, and, and, you know let alone, like, like you were saying, 20,000 kids in the LRA, 3,000 cases in Nigeria, I, I wasn't able to find any real statistics, though, from Afghanistan, in, just on their report, Afghanistan, Syria. I know Syria's having a truckload of child soldiers, and, and most especially some of these other places, like where there you know, is some substantial fighting going on in, in Yemen and Somalia, too. Can you guys inform us a little bit about, you know, some other regions and, and why it's happening there as well too? Yeah. So Dave, this is, you know, it's globally and the global numbers are really hard to, to kind of get down to because you don't know if it shifts in the criteria or if it shifts in, in the, in the conflicts. And when you start to take the conflicts, you know, on kind of a global scale, 
it's, it, you know, everybody that even kind of tracks these things, they, they admit that it's, it's hard to get to them. But, you know, really what they're talking, latest fairly decent consensus is that from 2017, 2019, it's gone from, you know, about 100,000 to just over 200,000 children that are in this sort of situation right now. Wow. Part of it, part of it is culture. And, you know, you and I both know from fighting in Afghanistan that, you know, it's a, it's, it's a very um, tribally aligned society. And part of it is like, hey, you know, like you're coming of man is that, you know, in these societies, there is absolutely a kind of a, a war-based culture. Um, and, you know, when you're 12 years old and old enough to carry, you know, carry equipment or be a help in whether it be defending the, the tribal resources or doing something on behalf of, you know, your, your dad, your uncle, you know, the, the people that you look up to, um, you're going to be involved in it. So that's kind of like Afghanistan and Yemen. You know, it's, it's very tribally or culturally based. Um, well, I remember, can I, can I hop right in? I, I remember in our first conversation, I, you know, I had, I had referenced this one when I was working for Blackwater back in, in 05 and I was in Afghanistan. I had seen this frontline news report called Children of the Taliban and this wonderful Pakistani journalist had gotten access to the madrasas in, 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 um, yeah. in, in, in Pakistan and really discovered just this very, very methodical, articulated way that they were recruiting these impoverished kid and kids, giving their parents stipends, you know, monthly or weekly stipends, getting them into the uh, madrasa, isolating them and converting them into suicide bombers, if you will, or whatever else, you know, whatever. And I, and what's crazy is that just as I, you know, was trying to search for something relevant and, and modern, you know, now I, I, I found this great little documentary uh, called uh, Where Childhood Died that was put out by RT, that Russian news source. And it was about Syrian kids. And one of the fascinating things is that they had built this extensive tunnel network and they were using these kids to build the tunnels for them, right? And, and, and so it's not only just in the spectrum where they're giving them AKs and they're putting them on the front line. And they're incorporating for all aspects of, of, of combat operations, right? Yeah. And the, uh, you, you know, so that, that's kind of like almost like the model that, that ISIS went at it too, is kind of like, the, hey, your child was a commodity and we're going to pay you for them. And then, but we're also going to take them, segregate them, get them aligned in the way that we want them. You know, and, and this is a this is a historically time tested, proven thing. I mean, the, the Hitler's youth. I mean, these are these are very parallel and very synonymous examples. And then you have the other. You know, you can flip this as well. You know, like right. You know, right now in Somalia, it's been hit by drought. You know, the conflict has gone on for so long. The the Somalis that are out there in those rural areas, they don't have you know, a pot to piss in, quite frankly, and they're, they're always half starved. So when Al-Shabaab comes around, it's time to pay your yearly Al-Shabaab tax. And because of the drought, you haven't been able to raise cattle, so you can't give them cattle or grain. Then you give them a kid, and that kid is now gonna go off and be indoctrinated and trained, and then used by Al-Shabaab. So like, there's all sorts of instances with it. Um, and I think, you know, what, what Nick and I have kind of concluded over time is that, is it whether it be a state actor, somebody that's like um, Sudan per se, you know, I mean, they're allowing younger kids or kids that are less than 18 to be incorporated into the ranks as an armed force, as, you know, like, you know, quotations here, a, a professionally standing force. So if it's Sudan that's a state actor, or a non-state actor like Joseph Kony or Al-Shabaab or ISIS, there are still inroads to influence the non-state actors because they are almost always backed by a state. Right. So however you cut this, you can get at the problem by addressing it within the, you know, the political and the state structures that we kind of have globally. Mm -hmm. So it is something that um, we can get at, but to your point, the numbers are for sure rising, one. And two, the approaches at it are, I mean, they're just deplorable. 
And those that are pulling the strings on it, I mean, hey, you, you're in the black book now, buddy. <laughs> Thank yeah. God. Thank God they're in there. Quick, quick point on that, Dave, to, to take it from where Eric just said. I mean, child soldiers is not a new issue, right? It's been going on yeah. since, since the beginning of time. But one thing that we have seen is that they used to be used for things like messengers or, or static guards. But because the weapons have changed, uh, they are more in the combatant role, right? You could carry an AK. You couldn't carry necessarily a battle axe when you were 12, but you can carry an AK. And you're actually cheap to feed, right? And you're actually cheap to reproduce, right? So it's, it's not just, it is an increase. There's an increase in children, but part of that is because they can actually use them as combatants, right? So it is, it is like the worst case scenario where we might have the most effective militaries in the world ever fighting a, a force that's composed mostly of children. Um, and, and the people that are pushing those children to fight don't care about it. They're, they're a commodity and a cheap one. So I, I, I point that out. The other one is uh, the last point Eric made about the black one. So you mentioned OPEC. OPEC was done in 2000. It's a UN protocol um, that goes on to uh, the 1977 uh, conventions on warfare. Right? This is that was specifically about children. About 70 percent of the world's uh, countries have signed on to that, which means 30 haven't. Um, the ones that have need to push, if not force, the ones that haven't to sign on to it. And then we have to make sure that people actually do what they said they were going to do. Because there's a lot of situations where countries would sign on to these UN conventions with no intention of actually um, abiding by them. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways we can ensure that they do is not grant them waivers um, when it becomes more advantageous for United States uh, to be on their good side, so we give them a waiver for using kids. I think I think we're going to have to be in the future uh, start holding nations accountable um, for the use of children as soldiers and for sponsoring non-state actors that do. Because as far as uh, I'm concerned, that's the same thing. It's interesting, you know. You 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 talk about that all roads lead back to, you know, state sponsors and, and, and how they get to these proxies to do their dirty work for them. And then the proxies go down the line to find the, the most uh, inexpensive currency there is, i.e. children, right? And, and, and you, know, I, I, you know, Mick, you talk about the political process right now. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to see, um, where we're at in, in, in the world, especially now and as COVID-19 has really, you know, kind of uh, highlighted uh, um, the need to at least question uh, motives, right, uh, on these larger international players and what they're really about. Um, in particular, you know, China not knowing, you know, convincing the who, uh, how to, uh, to delay coronavirus messaging, right, or to alter it or to sh whatever. And, and I just saw another thing that reinforced that we had had an intelligence report hit in, you know, mid-early November. Um, you know, I, I, I think as, as, you know, we start to see, um, you know, these, these world organizations, the UN, uh, the World Health Organization, you know, we're starting to see, man, do we have a lot of faith in these people to be able to not only orchestrate, you know, good uh, uh, healthcare decisions and numbers and research and interoperability and sharing of information, but do we also, are, are we, can we trust them to be able to give us access to these countries that are supporting these child soldiers? Is the diplomatic process still functioning well enough uh, to be able to address this issue or in a world of craziness with rogue states like North Korea and Iran trying to get nuclear weapons and all this other stuff, is it just, is it just falling down on deaf ears? And is it even possible to muster some type of, of, of focus on this, you know, issue, which is, as, as you said, Eric, 200,000 plus children fighting, fighting in these, these conflicts. Yeah, so, you know, uh, 
Dave, you're kind of opening up a, a, a very interesting door and, you know, I mean, if I had a glass ball, but, <laughs> you know, if I had a glass ball, it, it would, it would absolutely say that, you know, big powerhouses in international funding for things like this, the United States, the EU, I mean, you know, we now have domestic, domestic draws for that money. You know, I mean, $2 million, sorry, $2 trillion stimulus package just signed over. I mean, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that that's, that a, a portion of that money is absolutely money that isn't going to go towards these international efforts that we were doing pre, you know, March of, of 2020. Um, and same thing for the EU. And when that happens, what, what it does is it means that there's less NGOs that have, um, you know, money around to go do these aid projects. It means that there's less monitoring. It means that there's less um, kind of a attention or even just awareness in these areas that the, that the child exploitation is happening. Uh, so it just opens the door. I don't know where it's going to go from here. Uh, you know, kind of one, but two, you know, I mean, the, the next question is, all right, well, how important is it? Right. Cause it is, is it just, you know, is it just the pimple on the back of the elephant or is, you know, these children, or is it really something that's larger than that? And, you know, in light of, you know, a nuclear capable North Korea or a nuclear capable Iran, I would say that it is kind of the, the pimple on the back of the elephant, but um, what it what it really is is it is it turns into a generational problem. Thank you. And, you know, we fought this. We, you know, Mick and I and you, you know, we we fought the GWAT, right? Like that was kind of like ours. And you know, my mentality going in was, hey, I'll, I don't mind dedicating my life to this or even dying for it because I don't want. I don't want this to be to reside on the shoulders of my kids. Um, but if you don't address the the extremism, the recruitment and the exploitation of children now, then it inevitably those kids are the same age as my kids. And like you, I've got four kids. And you know, Mix got got a son in the Marine Corps right now. Wow. And, and they inherit the problem. So that's the danger of it. It's more of a long-term slow burn danger not not some immediate thing and i think that you know with coronavirus and things that are going on on the planet right now i think the door is going to open for it to to potentially maybe double from the 2019 numbers of 2000 to you know is it going to go to 400,000 by 2021 it, it may not go up that much or it might but i think the uh, the uh, exploit or sorry the door is open on on despots and power under people to use them well, I saw one. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry, Mick. Go ahead. Yeah, because right now there are kids that need to be helped, but in just a few years they're going to be the enemy that needs to be fought. Yeah. Right, and they're not going to be fought. I mean, we're retired. You're retired. Um, <laughs> Thank God. They're, they're the next generation. Our next generation. Um, and I, I really think that, and I understand. You know, we got this question a lot when I was in the Pentagon for the last two years. You know, how long are we going to fight these wars? I mean, why can't we just leave? Um, my argument always was. Look, we had, we've lost a lot of people fighting these wars in the last 20 years. And just to precipitously leave because we're tired of it doesn't do a service to any of those people. Mm -hmm. I think we need to figure out a way to fight these wars um, without losing a lot of people by building really strong partners and by preventing these terrorist organizations from being able to rekindle themselves, largely through the use of children, but also in a vacuum that would be created by the United States precipitous departure. Amen. We need to work on stabilization. We need to work on getting NGOs in there to help. One, because it's the right thing to do for them, but two, it's the right thing to do for the United States, right? And it's the right thing to do for the next generation. Uh, when they serve, perhaps they'll be spending more time on our near peer competitors of Russia and China. That's what we want. We don't want them to fight the, the war that our generation uh, did. We want to finish that before we hand off the torch. 
I, I just love the way you, you think about that. And I get this all the time too. You know, everybody always is like, why are we still in Afghanistan? Why are we still doing this? Why are we operating all in these places that nobody cares? And, and it is that long-term uh, empathetic approach to, you know, globalization, right? We aren't protected anymore as we once were in the past, you know, even to the point where you see uh, the cartels. I mean, one of the most uh, common thing that, you know, we're seeing down on in, in the border wars down there with cartels is they're using childhood, you know, kids. Their kids are becoming these cesarios. They're, you know, I, I, I talking to a buddy in the FBI was telling me that, you know, these poor kids from Guatemala, you know, by 13, they're doing 20, $25 hits. And, and that blows my mind. And it's like, wow, is, are, is, are things that economically depressed uh, or has government been so corrupt that it's just the educational systems are collapsing? There's no access to increased literacy and to start thinking beyond, you know, your village or, or trying to free yourself, trying to figure out how to gain a dollar to support your, your, your family of 12, whatever, you know, and selling drugs or picking up a gun is an easy way to do that, it seems. So, you know, all the, all the, 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 the reasons why, you know, kids, you know, don't go. And, and this goes back to that genuine sense of cultural morality, right? Why, why, why do we, why do we wake up in the morning and we, you know, put our hand over our hearts and we say the pledge of allegiance. And then you guys go 20 years operating at the highest levels in the most horrific places to try and, you know, keep, keep what America is about. And then also to contextually spread the influence of uh, American exceptionalism or however you want to describe it or throughout the world, you know, where's that difference? And I think it really lays and rests in this concept of, of, of how to educate these kids, right? How do we get back into those villages? How do we, you know, I, I, it's so funny, man. I, I see all these stories of these, you know, there's that one team guy that went over and went and fought with the Kurds, right? He was just on Andy Stump's uh, podcast recently. There's, you know, there's the guys that I, I actually worked with a guy that was going over to, to, to Cambodia and working up in the Laotian Triangle and trying to suppress the Islamists up there. And, you know, they were, he was doing it missionary work. And, do you think that there's a place for kind of uh, people to take it upon themselves and to be a little bit more than just, you know, these NGOs and, and to go out there and, and to build a, a force within these communities that are, are subjective, you know, to, to that influence? Is, is there a place for that at all? So to start with the first part of your question on education uh, of these kids, um, that's one of the biggest things we can do. And if, if, you know, if somebody was asking me what's needed, it's, it's Americans, whether it's in the Peace Corps or their own, they create their own entity that goes and gives a lot of these kids an alternate view. And what I mean by alternate is if you look at, you know, Eric's already mentioned the Cubs of the Caliphate. Um, and if you look at the IDP camps in Syria right now, right? So there's a, a one particular called Al Hall. It's got 70,000 people in it. Wow. 50,000 of those people are kids. Wow. Right. And so these are all the kids of the ISIS fighters that died in our, our campaign out there. They have one view of the world and it's extreme. And if nothing deviates them from that point of view, that's your next generation of ISIS. So getting in there and, and again, it isn't about going in there and like having American propaganda. That's not what it's about. It's about having, teaching them a vocation. Right. It's not, it's not political. It's right. about giving them another means to make a living, have a family, what, what all people want in the world. It's to give them the education to be able to do that. So I think that that's one of the most critical things I see that people can do. I do understand. I've spent a lot of time with the Kurds myself and like a lot of my brothers and sisters that have, I have a fondness for them. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, I would be a little, I would not obviously um, suggest that people do that. <laughs> It caused a lot of problems for, you know, people that have to go get them back if they fall <laughs> in the wrong hands. And Way too many problems. All the, uh, all, I mean, it's, it's a serious problem. I mean, you want to talk about uh, sucking a lot of intelligence is, you know, you have somebody that falls into the wrong hands. 
that's an American. And of course, I totally think we should do everything we can to get that back. But then our mission almost becomes trying to recover all these Americans that probably shouldn't have been there in the first place. Yeah, we, I, at TNQ, we interviewed um, Jessica, you know, and, the, you know, the woman that was the NGO in Africa that you guys went and got and all that. We had her on. And, you know, I just started thinking to myself, wow, you know, these people that knew they were in an area of, of, of challenging uh, uh, stabilities and, and all of a sudden, you know, they get captured and, and luckily we, we have a country where, you know, Eric and his buddies are, are willing to, to do the things and put their lives on the line to go and, and, and get these people. Unfortunately, we lose people like Nick check and, and, and that, that's just, a, a, it's challenging to process. So I, I'm, I'm in a, I'm in agreement with you. I, I don't necessarily like the Cowboys. I mean, the whole thing down in Venezuela recently was, was appalling to me. Um, you know, I, I, I really hope and believe that, you know, organizations like yours can, because of the contacts and the network that you have, you know, you, you can get a, a little bullet point put in a, a, a projected line item for a new budget for a particular region, right? That you guys can have that type of influence and recognize that people can, you know, either politically get behind it or, or on a, on a more grassroots level, get behind it. And, and, you know, there's, you know, maybe one of my, my daughter's, you know, wants to go start an NGO to go stop this in the future because she's been exposed to maybe this podcast or what you guys are doing. So, you know, I think that's really kind of the greatest opportunity we have. I want to shift before we, we end in, in really how we can figure out how to help is what is, what do you think is the foreseeable future of this? I know, Eric, you were talking about, a, you know, potentially doubling from 200 to 400 because of, you know, the economic collapse of COVID-19 and what the stressors that's going to cost around the world or, or just the, you know, the D maybe the nationalism that's starting to happen in America a little bit where because of, you know, what we're experiencing right now, we might, you know, put the blinders on for the next six to seven years. You know, what do you guys think might potentially come from where we're at right now with, with child soldiering? Well, you know, I mean, at least a short-term impact, you know, I mean, at least until there's, there's accurate testing and on a volume scale that, you know, it will kind of help us monitor where COVID is. And with the recent monetary in investments have been thrown at it, I think that, you know, like I said, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the awareness is going to come off there. And if it's, as you said, like six or seven years, or if it's only 18 months, you know, that's all debatable, but it, it's, it's pretty hard to see that it would not increase just because the opportunity is there. And all of those other underlying factors, the lack of opportunity, the lack of vocational uh, education, like, you know, Mick just kind of talked about, those really haven't been addressed so, so that the, the conditions haven't changed. So I, I don't see how there isn't any way for it not to increase. Um, and I, you know, I think that going at it in a, you know, using the structure of governance to try and help limit that, whether it's the United Nations approach or whether it's, you know, going in through a lot of these large international aid organizations, in combination with the media to raise awareness on countries that are either sponsoring it or sponsoring the, the, the quasi state actors. Like that's how we're going to try and have to mitigate it. But you know, it's, I, I think it's going to increase. Um, yeah, just, yeah. I agree with Eric uh, for all the reasons he stated. I'd also point out something, another part of your question, which is this kind of surge toward nationalism and in many cases, isolationism. If the United States withdraws from the leadership position that it's, it's always had in the world, all these problems are gonna go. It's not just child soldiers, it's gonna be, it's gonna be a lot of problems. Uh, child soldiers probably gonna be, be one of them where we see it, you know, it's doubled, it doubled in the Middle East in one year. Wow. Right, so, uh, and by the way, 
40% of them, of, of those children are girls. Wow. What? 40% Mick? 40? 40% are girls. A lot of them actually serve as soldiers and, and obviously uh, a majority of as, uh, as sex slaves. But that problem is only going to get worse if the United States uh, just advocates its leadership role in the international community. But to, to, to hit a positive point here, there is stuff people can do, right? We talked about education. There's NGOs out there. And I don't want any of my previous comments to say I don't want, I wouldn't like to see people. They need to be out there. In fact, if you pair the two, you pair guys that want to stay in the fight, so to speak, and do good, well, instead of pairing with a, with a militia unit, why don't you pair with the NGOs? Uh, these guys have a lot of, and gals have a lot of smarts and how to educate people, but they might not have the smarts and how to stay alive in the process of doing it. So if you take the two, that's where people can have a, a substantial impact. Use your skills that you've developed in the military to be able to protect the NGOs so they can go and educate, uh, teach a young man a vocation, teach, uh, provide microloans for, for young girls to start their own businesses. So they're independent and their families don't feel the need to use them as some kind of currency. And then the United States has to stay engaged and has to be the ones uh, that, that because we have such influence on the rest of the world, we have to be the ones that, that force uh, compliance with these UN protocols. It, it really is. I mean, thank you so much for those responses, gents. Uh, you know, I, it's, it is such a complicated problem, right? And, you know, I remember being just a, a young E E4 at, at team one, when I checked on board and just, you know, f you know, freedom fight and root and toot and peril chested frog, man. And it's real easy. Where's the enemy? You know, you gotta do that. And then fast forward with, you know, getting to uh, the incredible opportunity to get to, you know, work at that next level and to see that it is complicated. And there are many, many different layers to how this work. And, you know, and I remember when my big influence was to shift and to, to kind of put, put a gun down and start working with kids for a living to start Frog Logic. You know, it, it initiated on an op in, in Northern Afghanistan you know, we were doing a counter drug op and, and just, you know, the typical, you go in a compound, there's 30 kids and you, you, the destitution of those children and just how vulnerable they were, not only just vulnerable, you know, physically vulnerable to the, the, you know, the dogmatism that just, you know, wreaks havoc on them, but also just the, how vulnerable they were ideologically and, and how without any type of education, they were just kind of it was predetermined that they just walk into this natural human order of things, you know, where eye for an eye and kind of this antiquated approach to solving problems. And I remember, you know, I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do something. And because I was a medic, my first inclination was to go and look at doctors without borders or USAID and to see how I could integrate with them. And unfortunately I was still pretty ego driven at the time and, and didn't, had had some un, uh, uh, probably uh, not so good uh, run-ins with NGN, NGOs trying to you know, interface with them and some of the different uh, positions I held and was just like, screw those guys. They don't know what they're doing. They're all idiots. They're, they're going to go out and get killed and my buddies are going to have to save them and all this nonsense. And now it's like, man, these are some of the bravest folks on the planet. Because they're, they're not walking in with a, a belt foot fed 240. They're not walking in with, you know, 39 of their other best pipe hitting friends. And, you know, they're going in with, you know, master's degrees in psychology or foreign relations or graduate degrees from Georgetown. And they're trying to really make a difference on the ground. And I, I just, from a place of knowing also, I, I, as you guys, we chat a little bit, I do a truckload of work in the veteran space, trying to help veterans find direction at, you know, once they take the uniform off, what better assimilation than this, right? It's still an opportunity to serve. The mission is, is still substantially profound in its altruistic you know, state. And, and the reward you, you reap instead of gunning someone down and saying, all right, I killed the enemy, man. Man, I'm saving a life and giving them a future. I, I, I just think it, it would make complete sense to try and somewhat work with these veterans transitional groups 
right? If, oh, you want, you want to continue seeing the world? You want to continue making a difference? Hey, how about hooking up with, you know, with, with the grassroots reconciliation group? Go work with them for a, a four-month, you know, sabbatical, if you will, to go see a whole different side of how difficult these problems are. And, and I just can't, can't thank you guys enough for, you know, wanting to take the, I mean, I think it, you know, the, the natural order for you guys is to, yeah, to go work for a think tank and to go become, you know, t tier one level consultants for every aspect of our government and our civilian population that is conducting business around the world is too. But man, to, to get into this aspect is really, um, it's humbling to me to, to witness the effort you guys are making what what can people do to support the Lobo Institute in particular in, in, in this effort? Where can they go to follow you guys? How can they contribute? How can they donate? Uh, you know, so right now we're, you know, we're really getting a deeper set of knowledge on what is out there. And we're really kind of doing it through the lens of the GRG, the Grassroots Reconciliation Group. Um, while we are in the process of getting our own nonprofit up and established and recognized. And at that, at that point, we feel that we'll have enough knowledge of it that we kind of want to want to be a layer above that where we're, we're looking globally. And if it's, you know, the Cubs of the Caliphate or recovering the Cubs of the Caliphate is number one priority like time now, then we will know that one or two or three organizations that, are the best um, tailor-made for that. And we'll kind of channel funding to, to those, right? Yeah. But then, you know, the world is flat now with, with, with age of the internet and the ability to recruit and the ability to, to kind of exploit this stuff. So in three years, if the problem isn't the Cubs of the Caliphate, but it's, it's the, the pups of the Philippines yeah. or, you know, whatever that is, then that's kind of where Love is to. We're going to be global and we feel that we'll have enough touch points and inroads to then swing and, and put that, that channeling of the funds and the attention into the, the, the Philippines. Um, so I would say right now how people can, you know, kind of, kind of assist and, and, and help is, you know, first and foremost, you know, fought for almost 20 years or 20 years and a bit more. Um, and there's a success story. Uh, it, it's not really in Afghanistan yet. It's it's not in Somalia yet. It's not in Yemen yet. But it, it is in you know with what they do for the information operation there against Joseph Kony and some kinetic stuff on the side of it. And uh, you know grassroots reconciliation group for sure. I mean they they are they are pushing hard there and you know they're operating on a shoestring but they're having profound impact and they could always use a little bit more of a shoestring and they'd put it to good use. Um, so I would, I would definitely throw a plug there first. And then, you know, as Lobo, we have a, uh, a monthly newsletter or, you know, a newsletter on significant events that we just kind of push. If people want to get interested and follow and see what we're doing as an institute, they can subscribe to that newsletter. It's info, I-N-F-O, at loboinstitute.org. They can write us an email and we'll put them on the distro. They can be aware of it. And then as our global efforts to end child soldiering come online, they're more than welcome to, you know, come in, tie into a fundraiser or monitor and, and do it that way. Um, but, you know, that, those would be ways that we'd totally appreciate it, one. And two, we just feel that it's a need and, and you know, we're totally dedicated to it. So, yeah, um, that's, that's the way you can do it, Dave. Well, thank yeah. you so much. Dave, if, if they want to go on our website, there's a section or a page that's in child soldiering. That's, that's the NGO that Eric's uh, referring to. And they can see when it's up and running. Uh, another thing we do uh, as Lobo is we advise the United Nations on conflicts. Right now we're focusing on Yemen. Mm -hmm. um, but we hope to be advising them on conflicts all, all over the world. That gives us insight into the groups that are most effective. And those, right. Uh, so if, if somebody wants to either contribute time or money, uh, if when we get our uh, NGO, they'll know that we're going to only pick the ones that actually have impact on the ground. Outstanding. Uh, and, they, and they're going to be the best ones that we can find. And we're going to make sure that anybody that contributes 
has 100% visibility on um, what it is that they're either their time, which they'll see, or their money um, is going to these efforts. Well, that's that's amazing, incredible uh, stuff that you guys are, are continuing to do with your lives, man. It's, it's I, I think it's so interesting when, you know, you, you try and conceptualize what life looks like after the level of service that you guys had. And, and uh, I don't think there's going to be a, a whole lot of time spent just uh, fishing in your back backyard. I think the, the initiatives that you guys are, are, are taking on is are, are going to give you a lifetime worth of uh, that sense of servitude. And I just can't thank you enough, not only for uh, coming on the show, but also for everything you guys have done for this country. I, I'm just so proud and honored to uh, be a little part of the superfery of what you guys were in part of. And I, I just, uh, I'm so happy and uh, blessed that uh, you guys are out there doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us, Dave. Yeah, thanks a lot for the opportunity. You got it, guys. Take care.